Well, good morning. Thank you uh, again for the opportunity to share uh, God's word. Uh, During the week, I listened to last week's message online just to get the feel of where you have been in your study in the book of Acts. And I really enjoyed the way Josh went about opening up and applying the text last week. I thought it was authentic, a little laid back, but from the heart, really helpful. And I'm sure that you were blessed by that. One of the struggles of life today is busyness and the need to slow down. Our lives get so cluttered with go, go, go that we rarely have time to sit and think about what we do and why we do it. We sometimes watch a show on Channel 10 called The Living Room and recently they had a guy on who was an expert in helping to unclutter their homes. Did you see that? Uh, Yes. I think this lady had boxes, 160 boxes of stuff in their rompus room. Well, sometimes I think we need to slow down and unclutter our lives because busyness affects our families, it affects our work, it affects our health, it affects our relationship with God and robs us from a quality of life. I heard the story of a guy who decided to slow down, so he took a walk. And as he came to a park, he noticed a friend sitting on a bench, so he went over and sat beside him. And he asked, what are you doing today? And the friend said, nothing. And the man replied, but didn't you do that yesterday? Yes, the friend said, but I haven't finished yet. (laughs) Back in Acts uh, chapter 7, it was Stephen uh, who in fact preached the longest sermon in the book of Acts and instead of looking at that in detail, I reduced it to two major points. Israel, you've always resisted the prophets that God has sent you and your law can't save you because you've never been able to keep it and it can't give you a new heart. Well, this morning I want to unpack and apply Paul's first recorded sermon or at least a condensed version of that sermon. I'm sure he didn't just preach uh, the time it took uh, uh, to read the scriptures, which was about four minutes. I'm sure he preached a little longer than that. But here we have the core of what he said. I've given you an outline uh, as a handout and you, you can follow that as we go through. And uh, on the back I just listed 12 characteristics of the church at Antioch that may be of some devotional value to you. And so we we have uh, this particular section of of Paul's sermon outlined here, the setting, the sermon and the response uh, to the sermon. So first we look at the setting. And here from Paphros, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Poseidon, Antioch and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down and after the reading from the law and the prophets the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people please speak. Now the first thing we should note here is the shift from Barnabas and Saul to Barnabas and Paul. It's Barnabas and Paul and his companions. Paul, at this point, is taking centre stage. The next thing we notice is that the departure of John Mark, who left them in 
Perga. Now, you may note that in this particular, on this map, you'll see how they came from Cyprus and they went up to Perga. And, and then they journeyed from Perga up into Antioch, Poseidon, into the area of, uh, of Galatia. And so uh, John Mark left them at Perga on the coast there. And you may recall uh, he is Barnabas's cousin and he may have resented the change. We don't know why he left. Uh, he may have resented the change of leadership in the sense that now it was Paul or, or he may have just been homesick. Or he could have, uh, could have been that he knew that where they were going and simply didn't want to go there. Because to get there from Perga, they had to cross these mountains. And it was one of the most dangerous routes in, possible in Asia Minor. A, a road notorious for robbers and muggers. And so Antioch of Poseidon was up in the Roman province of Galatia, modern Turkey today. Some 120 miles that's where they were heading. It was situated on a plateau some 360, uh, 3,600 3, feet above sea level. Could it have been that Mark, raised in uh, luxury, was afraid of such dangers and hardships? Another thing of interest is that apparently Paul and Barnabas didn't stay in Perga and preach. And that has led some scholars to believe that Paul became sick, probably catching malaria, which was rampant in that low coastal area, and decided to go into a higher elevation to recover. Paul does mention this in his letter to Galatians, that the reason he first came to them was that he was sick. And whatever the case, we know he got there. And here he is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This was his this was his viable mission strategy. Wherever he went to a new place, he went to the synagogue and, and there uh, to hear the, the preaching of the, of the word. The law and the prophets have been read and the synagogue officials ask if Paul and Barnabas have a word of exhortation for the people. This was out of respect for who Paul was. And here the door was open for Paul's first recorded sermon. And so we begin. The introduction, God's faithfulness to Israel in verses 16 to 25. This introduction sounds uh, a lot like Stephen's sermon. Like Stephen, he began by recounting a bit of Jewish history, which always was a good way to begin when addressing a Jewish audience because Jews love their history. So like Stephen, Paul opened his sermon by reminding his hearers of what God had done for them in the past. Then also like Stephen, Paul mentions how some in Israel failed to respond properly to what God had done for them. But that is not the primary point of this history lesson. Stephen, you may recall, hammered them with their past, using it to show how his hearers were just like their fathers, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Remember the encouragement that he gave them at that particular time. However, Paul used Israel's history to show how God fulfilled his promises to them in spite of their failures by sending to them the one who could save them from their failures and sins. And he gets there by pointing out 12 things that God did 
for the Jews. Now you might not be able to read all that. It's about, oh yes you can I think. He chose their fathers. He made them into a great people. He led them out of captivity with an uplifted arm. He put up with them and their lack of faith in the wilderness. He destroyed seven nations in order to give them the land of Canaan. He distributed the land among the tribes. He raised up judges when they needed. He gave them Saul when they wanted a king. He removed Saul when he proved to be unfaithful. He raised up David, a man after his own heart. He brought to Israel the promised saviour. In fact, all of God's activity in Jewish history culminated in the coming of Jesus. The one whose sandals, John said, he wasn't worthy to untie. This Jesus was the word of salvation Paul wanted to share in the synagogue that day. And so we find the introduction. Secondly, we see the declaration, the death and resurrection in history in verses 26 to 37. Paul focuses on the timeless fact of the gospel, the coming of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. He's addressing the Jews as well as the Gentiles who attended the synagogue as God-fearers. He told them that the word of salvation has been sent out and the word is Jesus. But although Jesus was born in their midst, they didn't recognise him as their Messiah. They failed to recognise God's salvation when it was offered because they not only didn't understand the scriptures, their expectations blinded them from the truth. They didn't understand the scriptures And their expectations blinded them to the truth. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He had no money. He had no influence in places of power. He had no standing in society. He hadn't been to the proper schools. And obviously he wasn't a military leader. So they wrote him off. They judged him because they listened to him, because they listened to him before they really looked at the man and the message he proclaimed. They never really saw him, even though he was in their midst. I can't help but wonder how many fail to see Jesus today. They read some historical character, they look at the church and Christians, but they never really see Jesus. Sometimes it's their fault for not looking closely enough or for judging too quickly. Sometimes... It's our fault for not staying focused on him, for not talking about him, for not letting him live his life through us. And that's a challenge. What do people, how do people read the church? Do they see Jesus? Or do they see rules and regulations? Or do they see, you know, it's very easy for the the non-follower of Jesus to say they're all hypocrites. But do we reinforce that by the inconsistency of our lives or are we promoting a particular way of worship or a particular way of reading the scriptures? Do they see Jesus? This is what Paul wanted to get over to them. These people read the scriptures every Sunday but they didn't see Jesus. Every Sunday, every Sabbath, shall I say, they read the scriptures but they didn't see him because they had some preconceived ideas and it did not meet their expectations. And so that's sort of scary. 
if men could really see Jesus, they would recognise that he is God's word of salvation. But many never really see him. And it is true for many in his own time. They didn't understand the scriptures and even though the prophecies concerning him were read every Sabbath and they knew them by heart, they could recite them rote, but they missed the message. Now I find that fairly frightening. We assume that if we read the scriptures and preach them and teach them and memorise them, that those who participate with us will comprehend the word of salvation contained in them and be changed by it. But that doesn't always prove to be the case. Why? Because like many in the synagogues of the first century, some people really don't listen. They don't ask questions. They don't seek to apply the scriptures to their lives. To them, the reading of scripture is nothing more than a religious ritual done to make people feel good, uh, done to make them feel good or to make them feel acceptable to God as though it's something they can do to make them worthy as a responsibility. They never really take it personally or seriously and as a result, they miss God's gift just as many did in Jerusalem when Jesus was rejected and crucified. Their rejection, however, had been foreseen by God. And the good news Paul proclaimed to his hearers is that God fulfilled all his promises to his people by raising up Jesus. If only they would accept it and its implications for their lives. This was Paul's exhortation to the people and then we see his exhortation in verses 38 to 39 therefore my friends I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin and justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses and here's the good news of the gospel The good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way for sins to be forgiven. That anyone can be restored to fellowship with his creator because through Jesus his sins can be forgiven. The bad news, at least some would think it's bad news, is that it is only through Jesus that sins can be forgiven. That means all other attempts to get back into fellowship with God will fail, including attempts to to fulfil the law or to keep the law. Paul makes it very clear here that Jesus can do what the law could never do. It could never free anyone from their sins. It merely reveals how sinful they are. Jesus, on the other hand, can actually free a man from the guilt and stain of sin. The word translated freed is the same word that is, that is often translated justified in the New Testament. Paul's first recorded sermon bears down on one of Christianity's most important uh, truths, justification by faith. This is a legal term that implies full acquittal. Once justification takes place, it does not need to be repeated time and time again. The record is wiped clean. 
Now that's good news for most of us when we've done stuff in the past that we're ashamed of. That has been taken care of when we're in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Paul was perfectly clear when he named his two audiences as being Jews and God-fearers, the Gentiles, and then he declared, everyone who believes is justified from all things. Now when we enter into relationship with Jesus, that means a great burden is lifted. When things from your past and my past are brought to mind and we feel ashamed and that burden is on our back, here is a truth that liberates. Even though sometimes the devil uses that to nag at you and to remind you of your past and whether you're unworthy or whether I'm unworthy, the truth is that everyone who believes is justified from all things. The slate is clean through what Jesus did on Calvary. The Jews' main message was keep the law. Paul's radical new message was believe. The question comes, do we live as people who know that we've been acquitted and forgiven and reconciled once and for all by Christ's death and resurrection? Do we live that way or are we still under the cloud, the burden of the stuff we've done wrong or the expectations of others? Has this resulted in freedom from guilt and compulsive ways of trying to make ourselves right with the Lord by our own efforts? Or are we liberated from having to win his approval and the acceptance of others? Sometimes they're the motivating factors in what we do and how we do things. His grace is not conditioned by our performance, but is that our working day, daily, moment by moment security? Is that how we operate under the freedom or are we still restricted by some constraints? When Rembrandt painted his famous portrayal of the crucifixion, he painted his own face into one of the crowd at the foot of the cross. He expressed the longing we all feel to be there hourly to recover the amazing gift of unconditional love through the Saviour's death upon the cross. And then fourthly we note in this message the warning, acceptance or rejection, verses 40 to 41. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Habakkuk 1 verse 5. Paul is saying that when you hear this incredible word of grace that God has found a way to love you, to rescue you by virtue of nothing that you have ever done but by what Christ has done for you, that this is a moment of crisis. This is a moment of crisis in your life. You can either accept it and live in the glory of that love or you can reject it or ignore it and turn away. And this is a moment of truth that we all must come to. Paul is making reference to the fact that God has appointed to eternal life all who are willing to believe that he says, even when it differs from what I've been taught or what I've believed in the past, 
That light can be given only to those who recognise that they are living in darkness and therefore willing to accept the light of God's word, no matter the implications or what changes might be called for. Far too many take the attitude that they'll believe something or accept something only if it supports their previously held beliefs and decisions. You know, that was what the fatal mistake of the Jews was. They refused to accept the truth because of their preconceived. They had the blinkers on. The only way that they could see the future, the only way they could see Jesus, were through these false expectations. Even though they read the scriptures, their scriptures, Sabbath day after Sabbath day, the penny didn't drop, the lights didn't go on because of their preconceived ideas and because of the the rote fashion in which they reminded themselves, became hardened to the truth. Those who refuse to acknowledge the truth of God's word, if they contradict it or reject it or choose to ignore it, this scripture says they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Now that's scary stuff, isn't it? It means that everybody that heard the gospel, every time we share the gospel with others, they can choose to ignore it. They can choose to reject it or contradict it. But they do so bringing judgment upon themselves. By their decision, they are turning their backs on the amazing gift that God has given, the gift of freedom, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the unconditional love. Of Jesus, And so this is the message that Paul preaches. And here we come now to the response in verses 42 and I'll go through to 52. And, and here we first note the hunger for more. And I love this initial response. After this message, they followed Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue begging for more. I want you to go away this morning begging. No, no. Uh, Paul, they were just wanting to hear more. You know, and now when Luke notes that they were urging them to continue in the grace of God, it's, it's not altogether clear whether Paul and Barnabas were urging the people to remain in the grace of God or the people were urging Paul and Barnabas to continue telling them about it. But either way, there was a real desire to know more of the grace of God. So on the next Sabbath, note this, the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. They pleaded that they would continue and then the whole city turns out to hear more because of that hunger. The Gentiles were ecstatic because Paul's message was better than they could ever have dreamed of. Paul has removed the only major obstacle for them to be saved by telling them that through faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah that they could be saved without becoming Jews, without getting circumcised or without obeying the Mosaic law. This was truly good news. But this raised some difficulties. Jealousy, legal action, expulsion. This was a radical, groundbreaking step. And the Jewish leaders recognised this fact. They did what they could by contradicting and blaspheming, but finally they they appealed to the powers that be in the Gentile political structure and succeeded. They expelled them from their region. The Jewish leaders had been thoroughly embarrassed by Paul's popularity, 
by hearing their theological non-negotiables soundly contradicted and by the public display of the miraculous power of God that had not operated through them but through others. And so, thirdly, we see uh, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and then with joy to the ends of the earth. So finally, Paul and Barnabas, in effect, say, fine, if you don't want to hear this, we'll tell it to the Gentiles. After all, the Lord commanded us as Jewish people to be a light to the Gentiles and to take the word of salvation to the ends of the earth. But you'd failed to do it. Since you reject and refuse to acknowledge what we're saying, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, so we'll go to those who are worthy. We'll go to others. And so they brushed the dust off their feet and they went on to Iconium. That's a sobering thought. Those who reject the word of God judge themselves. If you refuse to acknowledge the truth of God's word... If you contradict it or reject it or choose to ignore it, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. You condemn yourself and the word of salvation is simply taken to someone else who will listen. That's what Paul did. And when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And then in verse 48, Luke adds... As many as had been appointed or ordained to eternal life believed. Now Paul began his message by showing them that God was proactive in his rescue mission. He started by telling them he took the initiative to provide salvation and when men believe they are responding to the activity of God who is already reaching out to them. It is part of the work of his spirit It is this wonderful, mysterious combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Some read this verse as supporting Calvinistic doctrine that some are elected to salvation and some are not. However, I believe the scripture makes it clear that God wants all men to be saved and that none should perish. Jesus died for all who will accept him, not just for a predetermined few. It refers to the fact that God has appointed to eternal life all who are willing to believe what he says even when it differs from what they've been taught or believed in the past. And that is the truth. And so, as we conclude, here are the outcomes. Firstly, the impact of the gospel was powerful. Clearly the impact of the gospel was very powerful. Initially the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers or proselytes responded favourably and wanted to hear more. However, opposition was coming. And we must remember that opposition often follows the impact of the gospel. The gospel changes lives. It changes culture and changes existing habits. Not everyone will like those changes. Some of you may have been aware that Margaret Court uh, put herself out there this week by making comments about Qantas and choosing to fly other airlines because of a certain stand that, that they have taken. And all hell breaks loose. 
You know, I'm a bit addicted to 3AW talk radio when I'm in the car. I'm not allowed to do it when Nola's there, but I do it when I'm on my own because <laughs> I've got to listen to her. No, no, that's right. So, so you know, and, and Neil Mitchell, you know, talked about the reaction that came from Margaret Court speaking out the truth. And uh, he called them, now it's him calling, it's not me, so don't misunderstand. He called them the gay mafia who now respond in accusation and, and, and trying to pull the rug from her credibility and, and all that she's stood for over the, uh, the years. Opposition comes when we stand for the truth and we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't be afraid because when we stand on God's word, we know that that, that is the truth. Now, we've got to do it in that loving way that we've talked about. We don't do it in a judgmental way. We don't do it in an exclusive way. We do it in an inclusive way. But we don't, we don't back off. We don't shy from the truth. And so we, when we share the gospel, when we tell people what Jesus has done for us, when we look for those opportunities on the train or on the bus or wherever it is to share our faith, to say who we are and, and why we are that way, We give glory to God and he will use that by his spirit to touch and transform the lives of others. But if we're silent, they won't hear and they'll go along with their preconceived ideas. They won't recognise Jesus. Oh, he goes to church. Yeah, that's okay. But church also brings negative feelings. So it's not enough to say you go to church because church is not on the radar of the society in which we live. It's a matter of Jesus And that's what Paul did in his sermon. He got up and he preached Jesus. He didn't say this or he didn't say that. He didn't say, he confronted the Jewish people with the reality of what had happened over history. But then he glorified Jesus by saying what he has done for us and the fact that he's released us from the penalty and guilt of sin. And that makes us free people not bound by tradition, not bound by things of the past, but free to allow the Spirit of God to to, to guide and to lead us and to empower us to be the people God wants us to be, to be a light to the nations, as it were. Even as the Jews were meant to be a light to the Gentiles, we as God's people are to be a light to the nations. You know, just as Paul went on to other places to proclaim the good word. And as you enter into a new era of of, of trusting God for resources to support your global partner family, you're working fervently locally to be a witness for Jesus and you've also got that global perspective. So that's the balance. We work locally but we have a vision globally because that's God's vision that we witness downtown Jerusalem, but we also invest in the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's very encouraging. And so here, uh, you know, the impact of the gospel was powerful. Secondly, opposition arises and Paul turns to the Gentiles. Paul announced that because the Jews had rejected the word of God, he and Barnabas would turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard the news, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord spread throughout the region and then the Jews aroused the devout women of provenance. Now, what does that mean? How do you interpret that? 
into our day and age. (laughs) The devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they drove them out of their district. And because of this, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. The gospel spreads as a light to the nations when we have a passion for local and global mission. And the final thing, the outcome of this passage, is the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. In verse 52, Luke writes, And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas moved on to Iconium with their travelling companions and the new converts stayed behind to form the new church. This is a story of the triumph of the gospel. In spite of persecution, there was great joy. The disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-inspired joy of the harvest is one of our great rewards. When people are saved and lives are changed, we rejoice. And we must pray that we will see that in our, in our community. People coming to a personal relationship, seeing God's movement in the hearts of people because they see Jesus in you and me. And that brings a response. The source of the joy mentioned here is the spirit and the occasion of the joy is the progress of the gospel even to the ends of the earth. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, our hearts are stirred as we think again of the mercy that you show to us, this marvellous justification by which all that has lain heavily upon our hearts and our consciences has been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. How thankful we are for this. Father, if there are any here today that have yet entered into the glory of this relationship, we pray that right now they will say, Lord, I want to be justified. Thank you for doing so in the death of Jesus. I believe it. I receive him as my Lord and Saviour. And we ask this in his precious name. And the people said, Amen. 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 Yeah, God bless you. Thank you.